Hi, I'm Lee Redfern, lecturer in audio and podcasting at the University of Sydney. As you know, Making a Difference is a Junction Journalism podcast showcasing student work, and this month we're doing that a little differently. University of Sydney student Nicola Brayen has produced an illuminating podcast series in which she explores the many ways we speak the English language. Language can define us, our identity, our culture, our community. It can also divide us. Language can be used to discriminate, oppress and marginalise. Nicola's reporting is a revelation, acknowledging the legitimacy of the English everyone speaks here in Australia and around the world. For Junction Journalism, this is the first episode of Nicola's three-part documentary series, Standard Deviations. Details about the complete series are at the end of the episode and in the show notes. Here's Nicola. A quick note before we start. This episode contains brief descriptions of the ugly nature of colonisation and assimilation. It also features audio from Indigenous people, some of whom may have passed. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should listen with discretion. This podcast was made on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. We live on um, animals on the land. We eat, we eat them and on the sea. We've been eating them for a long time. Uh, There's a lot you can tell about people from the way they speak. Grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers, uh, they taught us from generation to generation to eat eat the food on the land and on the sea. You can't see the person who is talking now, but just by listening to them, you may be able to guess their gender, how old they are, what their racial background is. You can probably also make those guesses about me. There are many ways to speak English. You're probably familiar with a lot of them, but if you're like me, you've probably gone a long time thinking that of these many, many variations, one of them is correct. If you're in Australia, that correct variety probably sounds a bit more like this. Look, I've had lots of really great teachers over the years, and thank you to all of them, and a few bad ones, and no thanks to them. But there's one teacher that really sticks out for me. Uh, She was my art teacher when I was at high school. The problem, though, is that if we say there's a correct way to speak, that means that all those other ways of speaking are incorrect, ungrammatical, broken. But that's not true. In fact, there are many, many dialects of English, each with their own rich histories and grammars, each playing an important role in the lives of so many people. And yet, When we talk about English, when we teach it in school, when we read it in the newspaper, we really only see one dialect represented. It's that correct dialect, and we call it standard English. There is so much to appreciate about non-standard Englishes that we're simply never taught, and that can be really damaging. In this podcast, I want to take you through these dialects, where they come from, what they sound like, and why they matter. And they do matter. A lot. I'll take you through how these dialects intersect with identity, culture, politics, and power. 
I'm Nicola Brayen. This is Standard Deviations. Before we get started, I think I should introduce myself. I'm currently a university student studying linguistics and media communications. I've loved language and English my whole life. In high school, I would edit the grammar of and give feedback on my friends' essays just for fun. In other words, I'm a grammar nerd. Up until recently, I would also have called myself a grammar pedant. Going into university, I had thought that studying linguistics would only crystallise that. But actually, it opened my eyes to how limited my understanding of grammar was. I didn't know about these different dialects of English. Truthfully, in the past, I would probably have labelled them ungrammatical myself. Learning more about these dialects has changed my perspective in a way I'm really grateful for. I'm not here to judge you if you thought there was only one way to speak English. Most of us do. Over this podcast, I'm sure you'll realise why. I'm here to take you on the same journey I went on, and I hope it's as valuable to you as it was to me. So, let's get started. And what better place to start than a dialect spoken in the country I live in? The term Aboriginal English, I come to understand it as a variation of English, which is unique to Aboriginal people. This is Ethan. I'm a Wiradjuri and Whalewin man from the Dubbo, Gilark and Bone area. I, you know, I grew up in regional, rural New South Wales and I grew up in an Aboriginal community, so I feel like that's impacted the way that I use the English language. Sorry about that. I just had to have a cup of tea. Cup of tea. Now that's a very Aboriginal thing, gotta have a cup of tea. Yeah, a cup of tea and a yarn. This is Professor Jacqueline Troy. I'm the Director for Indigenous Research at the University of Sydney. But for me, most importantly, I'm Narugu of the Snowy Mountains in southeastern Australia. I'm an anthropological linguist and as an academic, my work is to help people get their languages going again. Ethan and Professor Troy are both Aboriginal people and they both speak Aboriginal English. Or, I should say, an Aboriginal English. It's not only one dialect or one variety. There are many Aboriginal Englishes. As I travel around New South Wales, I can tell pretty much where somebody's from, depending on the kind of Aboriginal English they're speaking. Chances are, if you're Australian, you've probably heard people speaking an Aboriginal English before. You may have heard them used in movies and TV. I'm on my way to Grubbery over at the Gabba. It's a bloody drag. But still, my dad get angry if I don't show up. They've got to take them to Sister Kate. They're more clever than us. You think you can walk away from your mob? Live in the city for ten years making out your gubba? You may have heard them in conversations with Indigenous people, or you may even speak one yourself. But for a lot of us, there's still a lot we don't understand about Aboriginal Englishes. Let's start with this. What are Aboriginal Englishes? To understand how they came to be, we need to understand what happens when groups of people who speak totally different languages come into contact. The Aboriginal Englishes fit into what we call contact languages. Contact languages are literally what they sound like. So people come into contact with each other who come from different language traditions. If you want to communicate with someone whose language you don't speak, you start finding a middle ground that you both understand. Over time, that middle ground becomes more codified. You learn some of their words, they learn some of yours. 
you can go from simple exchanges like buying something in a marketplace to more complex conversations where you talk about things like the weather and events and feelings. When something is more of a system and more of its own language, you end up with something called a pigeon. That's pigeon, P-I-D-G-I-N, not the bird. Pigeons typically borrow vocabulary from one language and grammar from another. There'll be one language that provides what we call the substrate, the base for the grammar, and then you get all these other superstrate languages that influence the lexicon, the words used in the language. So a pidgin classically is a language that's not anybody's first language, but when there are children growing up speaking that pidgin as their first language, it starts to stabilise and become more of a system and expands and it becomes like a natural language. At the point that a pidgin is so systematised that people are being raised with it as their first language, it becomes what's called a creole. There are creoles spoken all over the world. You've probably heard of some of them, like Jamaican Patois, which incorporates English and several West African languages. It's very visual and you just it brings some excitement to the word of God. So I no longer yes, I'm gonna have to read because you have to read the word of God, but it's so exciting. Haitian Creole, which incorporates French, West African languages, Spanish, English and more. And Afrikaans, which blends Dutch, Portuguese, Indonesian and indigenous South African languages. I mean, it's very difficult to speak Afrikaans to speak if there's not one person who speaks Afrikaans and no one speaks back. So it's a bit snack. You may have picked up that, in a lot of cases, the force which brought all of these languages into one place was European colonisation. It's worth noting, though, that you see the mixing of languages in a vast array of contexts. And in fact, most languages have, at some point, been influenced by others, even English. English itself is probably what we'd call a post-Creole continuum. It's been a mixed language for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, more than a thousand years, actually. It's had Romans invading England, the French invading England. There's Germanic base for English. English is this mixture that has become quite stable in its own way so that we can understand each other. So, we know that these Creoles are created when people who speak different languages are mixed together, and we know that they usually take grammar from one language and vocabulary from another. Over time, they stabilise and become their own unique thing. Cool. How did this happen for Aboriginal Englishes? Before colonisation, over 250 languages were spoken in Australia with over 800 dialects. Even within speech communities, Indigenous people were multilingual. Even within the one language group, you'll have separate languages for children, separate languages for women's business, you know, secret things women want to talk about, men's business, secret things men want to talk about, not with women, and ceremonial languages, song languages, love magic, poetry languages, and you name it, we had a language for it. This was one half of the contact language equation. When the British invaded Australia in 1788, they brought people who spoke Irish with them because many of those convicts were Irish the English spoken by the very few officers who were the administrators that came with Governor Philip and their English was educated English in most cases, the sort of 
Cambridge, Oxford sort of variety of English. The sailors, they were all Marines, these officers that came with Philip. They all knew this kind of pan world seafaring pigeon, as it was called. So there's this mix, and then there are all the Aboriginal languages from around Sydney. So Aboriginal Englishes have kind of grown out of that swirling mix of other languages. Australia is the first place where a pigeon developed in the Pacific because it was the first consistent settlement by any invaders from anywhere else, well, European invaders, I should say. This pigeon gradually became naturalised in the way we talked about earlier. The reason was Aboriginal people were so polylingual to begin with and then as Aboriginal people become more and more proficient at speaking English as well, that's an additional language, this kind of developing colonial jargon stabilised a bit into a pidgin and then ultimately creolised. These Aboriginal Englishes kept growing for a few reasons. They were one of the only ways that Indigenous people could talk to colonisers. The first fleeters were probably responsible for the pidgin growing because they weren't learning local Aboriginal languages. It stayed with the Aboriginal communities as a creole form because there was a lot of intermarriage between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Of course, though, there were other pressures that prevented Indigenous people from speaking their own language. Sadly, because of government policies, we were allowed to speak English but not to speak these other languages. The assimilation policy was legislation put into effect in 1937, which effectively intended to erase Indigenous culture. Indigenous children who could pass as white were stolen from their families and forced to live in white Australian society. Those who could not pass were forced to live on missions and reserves where all cultural practices were forbidden. Languages were outlawed and Aboriginal people were forbidden from speaking their traditional languages to their families and to their children. Only 40 of the 250 Indigenous languages spoken before colonisation are still spoken today. This is no accident. Aboriginal culture won't survive without language because it's such an intrinsic part of, of who we are and what we do and how we express ourselves. To take away language is to, to take away all other elements of culture. You can't have one without the other. I think it's particularly important for Aboriginal uh, cultures and communities because it's, it's an oral tradition. From the devastation of invasion and assimilation, though, Aboriginal Englishes have emerged, and not just as a necessary way of communicating. I see it as an instrument of of Aboriginal resistance, even, to reclaim that in some way and to kind of amalgamate that with this new language and this new way of communicating that was was imposed on them. It's not assimilation, but it's it's compromise. I feel like compromise was a big part of Aboriginal resistance in the early stages, where trade-offs were made in order to preserve some element of culture. You're listening to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production, and this is the first episode of a three-part documentary called Standard Deviations. Aboriginal Englishes do preserve culture in a really cool way. To understand this, let's talk about what Aboriginal Englishes sound like. For starters, there's some vocabulary which is unique to Aboriginal Englishes which you may already be familiar with. Some of these can be traced back to the colonial origin of the dialect. 
you get all kinds of interesting things fossilised in Aboriginal English that you don't have in wider Australian English. Typically, we say this word gammon, meaning that's nonsense from the old word for gammon, gammon ham and like fake ham made out of other kinds of substances. Aboriginal people all know this word gammon, meaning, oh, that's nonsense. That's, yeah, he's speaking gammon. Or, and, and we say no gammon. So what I'm telling you now is no gammon. It's true. <laughs> if I ask you, are you gammon? It means are you serious or like are you joking sort of thing? We also have, there's another word we use for non-Aboriginal person, gubba. This word gubba, which comes from governor. You know, English criminals used to talk about the governor being the person who was their boss, the crime boss, you know, so, hey, gub. <laughs> so, gubba, people call white people gubba. Some words might sound familiar, but have different meanings in other English-speaking contexts. The word black in Australia, it's not a skin colour thing at all. When the British invaded Ireland, they built a palisade fort around Dublin, which is what the British typically did when they invaded somewhere. Everything was good and safe and white and light inside the Palisade fence, and everything beyond the pale is black and dark and bad. The Irish were beyond the pale, so they were black. So this was applied in Australia as well to the Irish, and then it came to be applied to Aboriginal people who were beyond the pale. Anybody who was outside the law and outside the settlement were black. Deadly is a pretty common example of this, so deadly in our context means good, basically, and then deadly, and obviously in an English context, means fatal, avoid at all costs. Without recognising these distinct senses of common words, it can be easy to mix messages. I remember when I was growing up in Kilkangra, they had a, um, the council had a, a campaign, there was a drug problem at the time. The aim of it was to reach out to Aboriginal communities and to convey the message that the drugs are harmful. And the solution was to post posters in the Indigenous communities on telegraph poles and on council buildings. And in big, bold, yellow writing across the poster, it said, drugs are deadly. <laughs> and pretty quickly that became kind of lost in translation. There are also words from Indigenous languages which have become vocabulary in standard English through this process of contact. Now, a lot of our vocabulary in Australian English comes from the language of Sydney, like Waratah, that's the Warada, is the word for this particular plant in Sydney. Dingo, everybody knows a dingo. Dungo is the, is the word for cat dog. Aboriginal Englishes are also grammatically distinct from standard English. Remember before how Professor Troy told us about sub and super straight languages? Aboriginal Englishers can use a lot of English vocabulary, but can use the grammar of Indigenous languages. This means that speakers of Aboriginal Englishers might not care as much about word order as a speaker of Standard English, because Indigenous languages don't rely on syntax as much to construct meaning. You'll get a reasonable degree of free form use of, for example, numbers. Temporal marking Australian languages are not very bound to a sort of structure like English where if you move things around too much people will completely lose the thread of what you're doing because Australian languages are polyagglutinative and you, it's pretty clear that what you have is a stem form with all the marking added to it. Polyagglutinative languages, by the way, are languages that stack little bits of meaning on top of each other to form one more complex word. In English, we typically only have a few bits of meaning per word, so the order which we say words in carries greater meaning, because that's the more reliable resource we have for changing that meaning. 
English also only has one pronoun for second person, you, which we use for both singular and plural. Many Indigenous languages have different pronouns for singular and plural, so Aboriginal English speakers can adapt English to better fit that structure. Use mob, you people, you guys. Mob obviously meaning a group of people. In Aboriginal English, the you is a singular term. If there were more people, it's use. Adding the s on the end is a pluralised version. From accounts that originates in colonial times where settlers were interacting with Indigenous communities and trying to teach English. So obviously the S means plural. Aboriginal English has, has held on to that grammatical convention that was taught at the earliest stage of, of colonisation where U is the, is the noun and then VS means plural, so use. This isn't to say, though, that all speakers of Aboriginal Englishes speak the same way. In my PhD, I posited the idea of a sociolectal continuum. So that is sociolect being a variety of a language group spoken by a particular group within a society. So Aboriginal English, for example. So at one end, you've got a very a sort of English-influenced sociolect that's spoken by people who probably rarely, really use it. So it's very Anglo with a few Aboriginal lexical items thrown in. At the other end of this sociolect was the the heavier, more Aboriginal-influenced variety. So that would be the variety probably used between Aboriginal groups who were maybe no longer speaking each other's languages or were speaking each other's languages but also using this pidgin as a way of in-group communication. I called it Melaleuca because there are all these trees that are a combination of black and white. A melaleuca, if you didn't know, is a type of Australian tree, also called a paperbark. It's a white trunk and black branches, Milano and Luca, of course, you know, black and white. This continuum that Professor Troy explains, it tells us a lot about how we use language socially. Neither Ethan nor Professor Troy used much Aboriginal English when they talked to me, because I don't speak it. But in a different context, with Indigenous speakers, they might choose to speak in a way that's a bit closer to the Milano end of the continuum. It's not something that I just think, oh, now I'm going to speak Aboriginal English or I'm going to use these particular words. I just, we just do because that's how we talk to each other. It's just sort of letting each other know and being comfortable and being able to be yourself. When I switch into a kind of Aboriginal English, my sound changes, the vocabulary I use is in-group vocabulary. Like I said, I might use a word like gammon. And I know Aboriginal people who speak very, very good standard Australian English and then also speak very, very good Aboriginal English. So they're multi-dialectal, is the way I'd put it. There are definitely phases when I'm back on country and with family. The transition to Wiradjuri is easy and when I'm at university and in class, it's definitely rigid, formal, high-level English. It's, it's a conscious transition, uh, depending on context, and there are definitely instances where sometimes I've forgotten to make the transition and I've said something that may seem ridiculous, sort of like country bumpkin-like to someone. And when you aren't able to make that transition consciously, you definitely face judgment for it, whether it's overt or whether it's an internal thing where you're hard on yourself for not meeting a group of people at their level of English, I suppose. This hurt that Ethan is talking about speaks more broadly, I think, to the way we sometimes treat speakers of Aboriginal Englishes. Of course, we choose vocabulary based on context all the time, but when we say that one way of speaking isn't appropriate for formal or academic contexts, it's really demeaning. Even in our interview, 
Ethan kept using descriptors which referred to his own way of speaking as somehow less than. I wouldn't describe my English as particularly highbrow or complex. I feel like the context there is a lot more colloquial, a lot more conversational rather than kind of the formal sort of English that's required in in sort of higher higher, higher standards, I, I suppose. Standards isn't the right word, but um, more, and again, sophisticated is a horrible word to use, but more sophisticated places and, and communities. This isn't Ethan's fault. Even within linguistics, there's a tendency to treat non-standard dialects as inferior. Even when I was doing my research about New South Wales pigeon, the person who was the head of, of linguistics, he was really angry that I had wasted a Commonwealth fellowship on doing my PhD on this rubbish language. There was this sort of purist view from the faculties that Aboriginal languages were not these other things, that these were, people used to use the term bastardised, you know, as though they were some sort of non-formed, non-legitimised languages that just should really not be encouraged. It's an infantilising feeling when you're speaking one of your languages to one audience and, and you're pulled up on it and you're explicitly judged and told to, you know, speak, speak English or speak properly. Yeah, it can, it can hurt. Judging the way people speak is inextricable from judging who they are. The relationship between Aboriginal culture and, and our language is, it's, it's essential and it, it has to be eternal. You can't remove it at some stage and expect those cultural practices to continue in the same way. These non-standard dialects are so much more than just ways of speaking. As soon as I hear someone speaking in Aboriginal English, I feel really happy. <laughs> it makes me feel good. I feel, you know, I'm surrounded by other Aboriginal people. It's really a nice feeling. Taking pride in this speech is really important. It's like a bit of a personal kind of rebellion, I guess, to kind of rail against the standards that are kind of imposed on us and to say it's my right to express myself in whichever way I choose. Breaking down those, those barriers between standard English, Aboriginal English, traditional language will sort of give Aboriginal communities and give Aboriginal people the, the bravery and the support that they need to, to make those assertions and to, to stand up for, for their language and to, to speak up, I guess, as pun intended. <laughs> in episode two of Standard Deviations, we'll talk more about non-standard dialects, including one so infamous that the national government tried and failed to ban it. So I sometimes talk about the Speak Good English movement as a national trauma. Um, usually I say this as a, a kind of joke, but it's actually not totally a joke. To listen to the rest of this podcast, just type standard deviations into the search engine of your favourite podcast app. There's also a link in the show notes for this episode. Of course, Making a Difference will return next month with a new episode. And for more of the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. Special thanks to Lee Redfern and Josh Doughton for all their invaluable help. To Professor Jacqueline Troy and Ethan for their time and incredible insight. To Castelline Tylus and Wikitongs and Eric Elena for their permission to use their audio recordings. And to Veronica Lennard for her awesome artwork. I'm Nicola Brayen. Thanks for listening.